yeah, we've got a, a great Sunday. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Duh. Just by a show of hands, uh, how many in this room are rooting for the Chiefs? Anybody? Chiefs, Chiefs, or yell. Yelling's good too, yeah. And the 49ers. Yeah. <laughs> Obvious California presence is evident here. Uh, but uh, how many of you guys are hoping that we just can watch football and not Taylor Swift? Yeah, all right. Amen to that. So I just want to watch a football game. I don't know about you guys, but... Um, Super Bowl Sunday, yes, and that just lands right in the midst of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, the mighty book of Romans, discussing some very weighty matters that carry some very weighty ramifications, not only for us as followers of Jesus, but also for the entirety of mankind. And, And last week we did indeed talk about this grave and sobering topic of the wrath of God. And we arrived at some foundational truths. We We realized and found ourselves at this place that said that the the wrath of God is present and the wrath of God is divine and the wrath of God is ultimate. And and thanks be to God uh, that through his son Jesus Christ uh, placing himself on the cross for our sins that the wrath of God was satisfied. And Jesus Christ stood in our place He bore the entirety of God's wrath on the cross, and this wrath was replaced. This wrath was replaced with God's great love. In fact, the only thing comparable to God's wrath is God's love. And so where we arrived at is we should have this greater appreciation, this greater joy, this greater exuberance for indeed our salvation. Because it's not the things that we see in this world the, the trivial and temporal and even, uh, you know, transient things that we think we are coming against in this world. It, it's not those things in which we need to be saved from. The, the thing that we need to be saved from is the wrath of God. It, it is the wrath of God that we have been saved from. And that is at the core, that is at the meaning, that is at the very gist of the word Salvation. When we say we have been saved, when we look at our salvation, we have been saved from the wrath of God. And if you survived last week's message and you survived the reading from the excerpt from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, good job actually for coming back this week. (laughs) But you notice that we didn't fully address, we didn't fully complete or exegete verse 18. At the conclusion of that, the verse, our verse last week, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This suppression of the truth is where we are going to reach back from last week, and that's the gate that we're going to walk through in regard to our passage this week. And so it is this suppression of the truth, this dismissal, uh, this stifling, uh, this disregard for what is plainly evident. And what is plainly evident is the truth of the knowledge of God. The truth of the knowledge of God. And this truth of the knowledge of God holds mankind responsible, holds mankind accountable, holds man t- mankind culpable. And as we see from our passage today, it holds mankind without an excuse. If we remember, this is Paul's linear, uh, precise, 
specific and systematic precision as a surgeon, just cutting to the heart of the matters. It is the tenacity, the forthrightness of a prosecuting attorney who is not only presenting the indictment against mankind, but he is also ushering in the guilty verdict. He is not telling us what we want to hear in these words through the book of Romans. He is telling us what we so desperately need to hear. Because regardless of how man is attempting to suppress the truth, truth to, to stuff it into a closet, it's almost as if you were to take an inflatable beach ball and try to hold it underwater. Uh, the truth is clearly perceived as we will see today. Because we are not allowed to take the liberty to define who God is. To, to basically formulate our ideas as far as who we wish God was or who we wish God wasn't. We, we can't dictate who we would like God to be because the word of God tells us who he is. So let's go ahead and, and look to see how this truth is suppressed. And uh, yeah, hopefully I could, you know, read the words. Um, but... This is what God's word has to say, starting in verse 19 uh, through 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, these are indeed weighty words with some weighty premises and some weighty ramifications. And, and this is part of the beauty, part of the challenge, and part of the obedience of preaching in an expository fashion. We, we can't do the workaround in some of these truths that are found in his word. We, we must go through the front door. And so by all means, let's pray to God and ask him to just bless our time together. Lord. It is your word that we look to because this is what you have for us as far as how we are to live this life, how we are to view this life, how we are, are to just take in everything that this world has thrown at us and, and how we are to have wisdom and discernment in what is before us. And so God, with our faith in you, with our life in Christ, thanks be to God that at the end of all of our questions, God, you give us the answers. Uh, the world that we live in, at the end of all the questions, all there are are more questions. But God, in you, we have the truth. We have the truth that sets us free. Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you. So Lord, we ask for your manifest presence today. Lord, that you would guide and lead. And we ask these things in the powerful name of your Son, 
Jesus Christ, our righteous king. Amen. So again, Paul is taking us from last week, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 19. He is building the case. He is coming against all of the objections. He is answering all the questions that have to do with this topic of man's fallen state, man's fallen nature, the depravity of man. And with Paul's statements today, this passage, he is trying to reinforce verse 18. He is saying and talking about the ultimate nature of God's wrath. Remember, he is saying it comes against all ungodliness, which is the denial of God, and comes against all unrighteousness, which is just acting upon this denial of God. And so when we arrive at this place, we also arrive at this question. If the wrath of God is ultimate, if it, if it is all-encompassing, what does that mean? Does it actually mean that the wrath of God is actually for even those that have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? The wrath of God is for those individuals, those unreached people groups that we're going to step in here in a little bit. And so this brings up a significant theological question. And this is what this passage of scripture actually answers. If the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and against all unrighteousness, then again, what about those who have not heard or have not been proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so this is our question. Are those who have not heard the gospel still under the wrath of God? Are those that have not heard the gospel still under the wrath of God? So, again, does mankind have a responsibility? Does mankind have an accountability? Does mankind have a culpability as far as this is concerned? I mean, surely common sense says this. Surely these individuals that have not heard the gospel of Christ, surely they would have some type of pardon. I mean, the, the judgment and the wrath of God is not going to fall on those individuals who, who they have not even been made aware of uh, this wrath that is coming. And this is where we arrive at so many places. I mean, we would look at this premise and say it's nonsensical, it's incoherent. That's not God. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't really define who I would think God would be. But we have to put those things aside. We have to look at the word of God as far as what God has to say about specific matters such as this. And so we find the answer to our question somewhat sandwiched in between a couple of these reasonings, a couple of these answers as far as how we were to reach this conclusion. So, so we have to pull out that answer and then look at the reasonings that support it. And, and we find this answer working somewhat backwards, if you will, or parachuting in. We, we find this answer in verse 20. It doesn't say uh, those who have suppressed the truth receive some type of pardon. It doesn't say that those who have not heard uh, the truth get some type of free pass or are placed into a different category. It, it clearly states in verse 20, the answer to this question. 
They are without excuse. They are without excuse. Paul doesn't mince words here. He doesn't say it's going to be okay for some. He doesn't say that, you know, those individuals, they're going to be placed in a special category. He says they're without excuse. Apart from Jesus Christ, all of mankind is guilty and deserving of the wrath of God, including those who do not have the truth of the knowledge of God and salvation through Jesus Christ. And so in order to support this conclusion, in order to support this answer, we have to do some deep digging, and we have to step into some theological truths here. And so number one, the truth of the knowledge of God is revealed to man. It is revealed. He, this is his revelation as far as who he is to mankind. Verse 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so, essentially, we're talking about divine revelation, which is how God reveals himself simply to humanity. This is divine revelation. But if we were to take this divine revelation and subcategorize it into two different types of revelation, we would arrive at this, general revelation and special revelation. And so the type of revelation that Paul is speaking of here is this, general revelation. Truths made known to man about God through his creation. Truths made known to man about God through his creation. This is indeed salvific in nature means that or it is not salvific in nature it is not saving this general knowledge about the truth of God is not going to save a person it says though that this general knowledge has been made known it is plain to them has been shown it is clearly perceived so we could see that it is obvious that there is this general revelation of God to creation. So there is not a human being on the earth, on any continent, on any remote island, in any first, second, third, or fourth world country that is not able to perceive the truth of the knowledge of God, of God's existence and his attributes. God has revealed himself to all people at all times in all places. And so his creation, when we look around at this world that we live in, his creation is on display for the world to see. And so when atheists or agnostics or secular humanists or secular materialists try to undermine the existence of a creator, what they're actually doing in that, they're denying the existence of creation. They're suppressing the truth. What is clearly and plainly evident for the world to see. Because here's where it lies. The truth of the existence of God is written on all of our hearts. It is our, our conscience bears witness according to Romans 2.15. And when someone denies a creator, what they're actually doing, they're saying, hey, if there is no creator, there is no God. And if there is no God 
There is no one or nothing that I need to come under ultimate authority under. And if there is nothing or no one that I need to come under the authority of, then what that means, there is no consequence for my actions. And if there is no consequence for my actions, there is no consequence for my sin. And again, last week, the wrath of God is against all ungodliness, the, the denial of God against all unrighteousness, which is acting upon those very sentiments. And it basically gives the license to say, I'm going to live my life in the manner that I see fit because there is no consequence for my actions. There is no consequence for my sin. But when we look to creation, Creation demands a creator. No one can escape the reality of the existence of God. Again, there without excuse. And where do we see this? Where do we see these invisible attributes of eternal power and divine nature? Where do we see divinity and power, omnipotent power? Where do we see this throughout our world that we live in? Well, just look around. Look around. It is the God of the universe who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. It is the God of the universe that put the stars in their place, that, that created galaxies. It is the God of the universe that presented the expanse of time and space. Who formed the mountains and the wind, according to Amos 4.13. I mean, look at the beauty of that. That's the Sawtooth Mountains, by the way. Who is the intelligence behind intelligent design? It is God. Who is, or what else would be possibly capable of creating subatomic particles that are only visible through an electron microscope? I had coffee with a friend this week and we were making light of some of the discussions as far as, you know, what is said in regard to uh, just, uh, you know, I support science, therefore I cannot support creation. Well, well, science speaks to creation. Why? Because if there was no creator, uh, we, science cannot adequately, con- uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting a little fired up here. Uh, science cannot adequately explain aspects of creation. It it demands that there is an actual creator because when we look at these things, when we look at the intricacies of the human mind and of neural thought, when we look at the intricacies of the human body which is fearfully and wonderfully made and the physiology behind it, all of these things did not come about by just the rubbing together of a couple of carbon cells. Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out his speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. This power is eternal. It is preexistent. It is creatio ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. You know, the, 
the fallacies of a big bang theory. Well, even if you would ascribe to something along those lines, you have to arrive that something actually had to be responsible for blowing everything up. So science actually demands that there is a creator. This world around us, around us demands that there is a creator. There is no explanation for the origin of this masterful universe in which we live. And so if general revelation is the truth made known to man about God throughout creation, then special revelation is the truth made known to man about God through his written word and through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is salvific in nature. This revelation is saving in nature. Every person has the knowledge of God. Every person has been given general revelation. But every person has not been given special revelation. Every person has not heard and made known as far as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, again, would piggyback off of our initial question, which was, you know, is the wrath of God still over those that have not heard the truth. And so this next question is something that we've probably often thought about at some point in our lives. What about, what about the innocent man, right? The innocent man who's living his life morally on some remote island, on some, with some unreached people group who has never heard the gospel. And what about that man? Will he go to heaven? Well, the answer to that question is plainly obvious. Well, of course that man would go to heaven. This innocent man would indeed go to heaven. But the fact of the matter is this. There is no such thing as an innocent man. Because all of us are guilty of sin. No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if that innocent man existed, by all means he would go to heaven, but that innocent man does not exist because apart from Jesus Christ, all of mankind stands condemned in our sin before an almighty, holy, and perfect God. And when we hear things like this, it's not something that we should just gloss over or, or take lightly. This is a sobering reality. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not being reached to this entire world. The reality of it is this. Apart from Jesus Christ, there are millions of people going to hell. And is that something that we regularly think about? When we see these statistics, such as 7,391 unreached people groups with 85% of them being in the 1040 window. And only 3% of missions going and doing work in this category. Do you know what that means? It means this. That 3.4 billion unreached people know just enough about God. General revelation. They know just enough about God to condemn them to hell because they have never received or heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Special revelation. Do we believe when we see the great and read the great commissions 
in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1-8 that the gospel is to go to all the nation, to all the nations, to the end of the earth. Or do we see these charges and say, maybe that's not for me. Maybe that's an area of my life. Maybe that's an area of even my church that we don't have to step into and contemplate and navigate through. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. What is it that these verses are to do for us? And this is why we should come alongside and support international missions and ministries. Some of you were here a few months ago when our dear friend Paul came and, and preached and him and his wife Paul and Molly in India, one of the darkest places, 90% Hindu, 8% Muslim, less than 2% Christian, and even within that 2%, uh, that doesn't include you know, a small, very even smaller percentage as far as evangelical, biblical believing Christianity. And so... This is someone we support. We support them and their 23 kids. Yeah, 19 adopted girls and, and, and four biological kids. So you thought your life was rough with your kiddos. Like, let me tell you, whenever I'm having a bad parenting day, all I need to do is talk to Paul. And so our own medical missionary here, P- Perry Jansen, who, who uh, comes alongside many hospitals in, in Malawi, uh, Africa. Or uh, Malawi, yes, Africa. And then a couple of weeks ago, we were able to to meet with um, the sister of a, a member here at our church, Jocelyn Zarenberg, but um, her sister Melody and her husband, Saleh. And they are in Zanzibar, Africa. Well, Zanzibar is a place where it's 99% Muslim. So you want to talk about frontline ministry. I mean, they're sharing the gospel amidst horrific persecution. And people are coming to know the one true God of this universe. And through a relationship in Jesus Christ, people are getting saved, disciples are being made, and the glory of God is showing in one of the darkest places in the world. This past year, we were able to come alongside some members of our church that are involved in what is called Africa Bright Future Ministries, which is an outreach in Rwanda and focusing on clean water, focusing on education of the youngins there and the students there and so many amazing things taking place, which is something you'll be able to hear a little bit more about next week as we do a financial update. So you guys will be able to hear how God is just amazingly working through Redeemer Church. But Lord willing, I, we, we look forward to the day as it pertains to Missions as a whole, with great expectancy, and just be able to one day be able to look back and see what God has done with great expectancy for some individuals right here in this room to answer the divine calling that the Lord has placed on your life to answer the call and to bring the light of the gospel to some of these darkest places in the world. These unreached people groups in which salvation comes to them. They need to hear the revelation, special revelation that Jesus Christ has come to save the lost. These places in the world 
that are in such desperate need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you recall from week one, our mission statement, uh, the place that we're going as far as the book of Romans is concerned was this. Our goal is that the profound weight carried by the countless truths found in this book would awaken in our souls a spiritual revival, a, a spiritual awakening that ignites a white-hot fervency towards transformation in our own lives and through the gospel of Jesus Christ on display through the book of Romans that many, many would come to know him as Lord and Savior. And may this white-hot fervency just continue through us in evangelism That it would not only be here in Eagle, Idaho, in the Treasure Valley, but it would go to every nation, to every tribe, to every people, to every language according to Revelation 7-9. And may we be in prayer to see and to follow the Lord's lead as far as what would you have for us, God. Knowing these things, knowing these sobering realities that are found in his word. What does that mean for us individually? What does this mean for the church collectively? Because there are those who are sent. There are those that send those who are sent. And there are those that support those who are sent. And so back to our original question. Are those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, are they still under the wrath of God and the First reason to support our conclusion that they're without excuse is that, the, that the, um, the truth of the knowledge of God is revealed to man. And now we look at this passage of scripture where the second reason is this. The truth of the knowledge of God is rejected, rejected by man. Revealed to man and then it is rejected by man. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So regardless of if God has revealed himself through general revelation or God has revealed himself through special revelation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be still some that reject him. All you have to do is just look around in the world we live in. But when you really think about it and really ponder that statement, how much more responsible are, are, are we in this uh, area of the world that we live? How, how much more responsible would we be if we suppress the truth, both general revelation, the creation that is readily apparent, and we also suppress the truth of special revelation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that has been made readily aware to all of us. Our existence as followers of Jesus, our existence in this world is to magnify the Lord's name, to glorify the Lord's name, to honor God, To give thanks to God and to fulfill his purposes. Psalm 86, 12. I give thanks to you, O my Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. 
And then in a magnificent display of giving God glory and honor, where 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne and proclaim these words in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you. You created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. What a beautiful passage of scripture in regard to our topic today. But what happens when man does not honor God? What happens when man does not glorify God? What happens when man does not give thanks to God? What happens when God is no longer the source, the giver of all of our life and being? What happens then? Well, as we will see to a light degree today and to a greater degree next week, well, there is an exchange that takes place. Man is sadly, heartbreakingly, given over to his sinful nature. It, it states that their, their thoughts became futile, that, that their hearts were darkened. They became as a fool. And this, this word in the Greek is moros, which is obviously where we would arrive at the word moron. And I know it's a little funny, sorry. Um, but... But what it means is these individuals who have been given over to their sin, they have become moronic in nature. They are no longer capable of differentiating what is truth and what is untruth. What is good, what is bad. What, what is right, what, what is evil. They are no longer capable of having valid, rational thoughts about God and his statutes as far as how we are to live our lives. They are given over to their debased and depraved minds. And it is this complete denial of truth. And it is this complete embrace of this world is where we find ourselves in 2024. Is it not? All you have to do is look at the world around us. And what is it that we see? We see individuals that suppress the truth. That's just the start of it. They reject the truth. They actually hate the truth. The progression and degradation of, of perversion, of just the darkest things in this world are just sinking to all-time lows. And I know throughout the course of human history, there has been no shortage of that. Uh, you know, maybe the world is at the worst place it's ever been right now, but I also know that the world has been at some very horrific places. But we're in one of those places right now. Make no mistake about that. There are individuals in our world that hate the truth of the knowledge of God. And in the process, they're claiming to have it all figured out, claiming to be wise, but indeed what they are are fools, morons. And instead of their minds becoming enlightened and free to the realities of, of God, uh, what actually is happening uh, that their minds are becoming darkened and, and they're becoming futile in their thinking. Instead of light and truth and righteousness, instead we see darkness and deception and 
deeper and lower levels of moral depravity. The Apostle John reiterates this in John 3, 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world, but still people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so as we see, we have not yet arrived, but we are nearing these deeper and darker levels of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this is where we see point number three. The truth of the knowledge of God is replaced, is replaced by idols. What Paul is referring to here when he says images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, we would probably say, hey, what's the big deal? We could think of a a lot worse things that, that men worship or mankind worships. But what he is referring to is essentially the bottom of the barrel when it comes to idol worship. Because these are leftover remaining abominations from the Egyptian, the Assyrian, and the Babylonian empires that were still finding their way into culture in that day. And so don't take those words lightly. Paul is speaking those words at that time. That's what was very prevalent as far as idol worship was concerned, but it was very debased in mind. And so, where we find ourselves again, we're, we're stepping into some tough and, and difficult passages. It's like, would you like an ice pack on your way out? <laughs> These are truths that we have to contend with. That we have to preach through it. Because God is speaking through Paul and the Lord is saying, I, I want you to see and know the depravity of man. Because when we arrive at this place, when we recognize what we have been saved from, that allows us to step into giving God even more glory as far as what we have been saved to. But this is not the end of man's depravity. It is this linear regression that Paul is taking us to intentionally. Godliness, ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. It leads to futility of thinking. It leads to darkness of hearts. And eventually it leads to what we will see next week. The deepest depths of wickedness wickedness and decadence. And what we see here, and may we not take this lightly. This is what happens when the Lord gives you over to your sin. This is what happens. What many would refer to as the dark or terrible exchange. This is where we find this word that many of us would probably say, I don't like that word. I sure don't like this word. What is referred to as abandonment wrath. This is what happens when man's aversion of God leads to his diversion from God, which leads to his perversion before God, and ultimately leads, leads to a new version of self. A, a new version of self that looks nothing like what God intended it to be. And all of those things, 
all of these things, it is here in this place for the purpose of us, not all, but as a follower of Jesus Christ to say, may we never find ourselves here. May we continually being in this place where we're chasing after the Lord, chasing after his righteousness. Thank you, God, all the while of what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. And what have we been saved to? We are set apart. We have been put aside and said, God has said, you are mine. You are my chosen race. You are my royal priesthood. You are my holy nation. You are my people of my own possession. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and behold, the new has come to my glory. You see, there has not been a dark, there has not been a terrible exchange that has been taken place. Instead, there has been a glorious exchange. Jesus Christ on the cross, his righteousness for our unrighteousness, his life for our eternal life. We no longer are under the wrath of God. Instead, we are under his favor. For all of eternity, we will be with him. We are not going to be separated from him, but we will be with him for all of eternity. And this brings us to point number four. The truth of the knowledge of God has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. And in fact, if we revisit verse 20, there is just this beautiful jewel, this beautiful gem that the Lord has placed in this passage for us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And if we were to look at this verse, in the things that have been made, this word is Poema. It's just a beautiful word. Why? Because this is where we arrive at the word poem. And this word poema is only used in one other place in the New Testament. And that is at a well-known verse, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his poema. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in Him. You see, God has created us to be His poema. He has created us to be His created workmanship. This masterful masterpiece, this beautiful tapestry that God has meticulously sewn. His poema, his poem. And we are his poem that we may proclaim his excellencies, that we may display him in all of his glory, in all of his honor, in all of his power, his eternal power and divine nature. And may that be said of us. May we dedicate our life to glorify God. Let's pray. God, we thank you 
that you have revealed yourself to us in general revelation that you have revealed your son Jesus Christ to us through special revelation God but these truths may they just not stop there hey God we rejoice may we found, find a, a newfound sense of joy and appreciation and exuberance as far as that we have been saved. But Lord, may you also instill in us, what does that mean? God, is there more here that you're asking and requiring of us? God, there are so many things in so many ways. May we be prayerful and discerning as far as not only how you would have us respond to this call individually, but even collectively as a church. And God, may you guide and lead all the while to your glory, God. We are a people seeking after you with white-hot fervency, God, that you would just awaken in us more and more of what you have for us, Lord. May we just be the recipient of this outpouring of your love, of your mercy, of your mission, all of these things, Lord. May we just place them at your feet. God, may your name be glorified. May your name be magnified. And may the gates of hell be terrified as far as what you're doing. God, we give you all the praise and the glory.